Third up in the team of the brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, sabermetric orthodoxy suggests that almost uniformly, starters, starting pitchers, are more valuable than relievers. And what follows, Cameron suggests that perhaps this orthodox view isn't so uniform, actually. Cameron holds that teams with hopes of contending for the playoffs might actually be best suited to converting starting prospects with electric stuff, but something less than ideal command, they might be well off converting them to relievers. And it might actually benefit the pitchers as well in terms of career earnings. Edwin Diaz is one name he cites. You can probably think of some others. Also discussed, the Toronto Blue Jays and Kansas City Royals. The former club lost some very important pieces of its 2016 team to free agency. The Royals, of course, entered the current offseason, set to lose like a half dozen of important parts. Doesn't seem ideal, but I bring the question to Dave Cameron anyway. All things being equal, does a team want to lose its best players to free agency all in the same year, or to have it staggered? His answer almost certainly will not shock you. It is based in reason and sense. Finally, regarding the quality of this episode, I asked Dave Cameron at the end of it to assess a grade between 0 and 10 on its quality, and he provides this encouraging response. Um, probably more than 0. More Bonami like that to follow. What is not following right now is a message from a sponsor. Instead, we will get directly to the conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. thing on uh, <laughs> sorry i'm getting distracted by the dog um i'm doing this thing on uh why teams should convert their starting pitching prospects to the bullpen because relievers are worth so much more than they used to be cameron that sounds like blasphemy yeah that's what people are gonna say this is another reason for people to be like that cameron guy's an idiot whoa but, but as if they needed any more ammunition they have so much mm-hmm you can't mean every pitching prospect. You no, of course not. No, no, not every pitching prospect. But I think as we see the value of relievers go up and the price of relievers go up, if you're a contending team with a guy who you're not entirely convinced is going to start, I think like the best example, right, is Edwin Diaz of the Mariners last year, who's their top pitching prospect. And in June, they were like, you know, we can spend a few years trying to teach this guy a changeup and hope he figures out how to get left-handers out. And hope that he holds up despite, uh, you know, interesting delivery in a small frame. And maybe in a couple of years we'll have a league average starter. Or we can stick him in the bullpen where he throws a hundred with a 92 mile an hour slider and he can be a dominant relief ace and then we won't have to spend 15 million dollars a year on a closer. Neftali Perez. That no. sounds like a, the Neftali is that Feliz? Is that a? Neftali Feliz. Yeah. Neftali Perez is a person I think. Uh, probably. Less talented though at baseball. Neftali Feliz. Uh, he's like uh, he's the first that I, I'm sure there were many more examples uh, predating this one. That he's sort of the first guy though that I remember as there being a a definite question mark about what his role was. In particular, after he arrived in the majors as a reliever and acquitted himself very well, throwing very hard effortlessly. I mean, uh, I'd go back to Mariano Rivera, right? Like Mariano Rivera was a 
back end starter when he came up and then they used him as a swing guy and like there was some thought that like Rivera could turn into a starter and then he was so good in relief they were like why why would we bother risking sticking him back in the bullpen uh this guy is pretty good out of the out of or sticking him in the rotation this guy is pretty good in the bullpen let's just leave him there and you know Aroldis Chapman had the same thing where the Reds worked on you know should we start him they gave him a spring training as a starter and then they were like you know 103 works okay in relief there are some guys who I think um, especially with the rising valuation of relief pitchers, it, it doesn't make economic sense for a win now team to put off, you know, real present value on the hope that you get a league average pitcher in three years. Right. And there have been, of course, there have been Trevor Rosenthal. This was a conversation yep. that uh, has revolved around him. Daniel Bard, yeah. of course, uh, the Red Sox. And, I mean, no one won from that that transition, right? right because sure. uh, I was going to say the Red Sox were not able to extract much value, but yeah. I think let's be clear, Daniel Bard was probably not happy about it either. Right. A- Andrew Miller is another guy who you know tried to start for a while and really didn't find himself until he moved to the bullpen. Uh, Roberto Osuna. I think you could probably say there's some some even disagreement now. Of like you know the Blue Jays took one of their best young pitchers who probably could develop into a good starting pitcher long term uh, and they've used him to make the playoffs the last couple of years I think if you look at the Blue Jays roster and what they have they probably made the correct decision even if they're not going to necessarily extract maximum value from Osuna himself uh, like maybe Osuna would have been a more valuable have a more valuable career if he would have been a starting pitcher but given what the Blue Jays need in their timeline I think the Blue Jays made the right call and so you're saying that there there are teams uh to which Osuna could have belonged, where it would made have, it would have made sense to give him um, greater opportunity to develop as a starter. Yeah, if you're like the Padres, then you should not be turning any of your starting pitchers into relievers unless you're just convinced beyond any doubt that they can't start. But if you're a team potentially in, in contention, uh, I would say you should take a long, serious, hard look at how long you think it's going to realistically be before this guy can help your team in the starting rotation and then look at what he could do in the bullpen right now. And if it's two to three years difference between when you think you might get some value out of this guy as a starter but he can help you in relief right now, you should probably move him. What about hmm, – what would you do if you if you have Michael Kopech on your team? Uh, so I think if you're the Red Sox and Michael Kopech is still in your organization, you don't make the Chris Sale trade, Michael Kopech's pitching for you out of the bullpen in June. If you're the White Sox, leave him in the rotation because you're hoping you get Noah Syndergaard and you don't really care about value this year or next year. You're looking at 2018, 2019. So I think the trade from Boston to Chicago saved Kopech's chance to stay in the in the rotation, in the, in the, at least in the short term. Uh, we'll see how it works out in Chicago. But if he's in Boston and, you know, they hadn't made the Chris Sale trade and come this summer, they're looking at trading the farm for a bullpen upgrade or taking a guy who's not quite big league ready as a starter but could potentially be a dominant force for them in the bullpen. Michael Kopech would be pitching one inning stints in July. So what does it do for the player's value? If, if I am uh, Michael Kopech or going back to some of those previous examples we cited, from, uh, you know, Neftali Feliz or – is that the – yes, Neftali Feliz, Mariano Rivera, uh, Daniel Bard. Uh, uh, and, but I guess maybe now you're suggesting that something has changed. Do I want to become a reliever? I think if you are a 
so we're not talking about like you know the best of the best in terms of guys who already have command and three pitches. These are guys who may or may not make the big leagues uh, as starting pitchers. If you're one of these guys with like you know two pitches, uh, questionable command, you don't know how to get opposite-handed hitters out yet, and you're several years away from the big leagues, but tomorrow you can start making you know, $520,000 a year, whatever the league minimum is. Uh, and then in a couple of years, you know, if you have dominant numbers, you get to arbitration and you can command four or five million dollars. And then you think if you're healthy enough to get to free agency, which certainly isn't any guarantee, but it's not a guarantee in the starting rotation either. And you can get to free agency. And if you're a really good reliever, you can get 50 to a hundred million dollars. I'm not sure that some of these guys shouldn't ask to be moved and say, look, Maybe I have a 20% chance of making it as a starting pitcher and a 60% chance of making it as a reliever, and I might decrease my career earnings as a reliever, but I'm giving myself a significantly higher chance of making something. Maybe I'm better off for my own personal gain in the in the bullpen. Okay, yeah. Well, and I know that uh, – so, of course, that, that's something that would certainly apply to Edwin Diaz, whom you cited. Uh, David Lorla recently published a, um, a conversation with Justin Wilson, yeah. the former Yankees reliever, current Tigers – Reliever, maybe, but although there's some talk of him getting to the starting rotation as well, um, does it seem like it would be in Justin? I think Justin Wilson has said that he enjoys relieving, um, but he also would start if they asked him to. I mean, if you're Justin Wilson, what, what do you do? I think at that point, when you're an established reliever, you probably want to stay in the bullpen. Like I think the the number of guys who've converted back successfully, uh, what John Smoltz did it, I guess, after he pitched as a closer for a few years, Adam Wainwright did it, but there's not like a lot of these guys, and those guys were successful starters and often ended up in the bullpen just due to injury issues, and once they got healthy, they could move back. There's not a lot of guys who moved to the bullpen because they couldn't hack it in, early, in the rotation and then were able to get better and move back because you... You really specialize in relief, and you you pitch to certain types of hitters. You don't face other types of hitters. You're not going to develop a changeup in the bullpen most of the time. Um, so I think if you're a quality reliever, risking that in order to wow, a lot of snow just fell in my backyard. Uh, risking that in order to um, try and make it as a starting pitcher is probably not the best bet. Okay, and you're some, and you're, you're this is the piece you're writing for ESPN as we mentioned yep. earlier. Correct. But you do not expect necessarily tons of positive feedback. I think the general thought is still that starting pitchers are dramatically more valuable than relievers, which is certainly true at the high end. Um, and that you're limiting your upside if you make this move, which I think is true. But I think limited upside with a higher probability of success is not always the wrong call. So a team, so teams that are in contention, they should they should be quite aggressive about converting their pitching prospects into relievers is the basic thesis. Yeah, assuming you have a hole in the bullpen. Because uh, I think realistically when we when we think about prospect values, a lot of what you're deciding is, am I better off using this guy in relief or am I better off trading some of my other guys for relief pitching help, usually in July when prices are very expensive? And if you look at, like, I'm going to have to give up several of my best young hitters. Like, when you look at what the Cubs gave up for a role as Chapman, right? Like, Claver Torres looks really great and like that could be a you know a franchise piece um i think they would love to have glaber torres back if they had a starting pitcher that they don't that's one of the the problems is they don't have a lot of high minor starting pitching prospects but if they had someone who could have allowed them to not trade for a role as chapman even if they didn't get as much value from that particular guy the organization might be better off by having kept torres because they didn't have to make the chapman trade so if you're in a position where you're like i have to give up two or three good young prospects in order to go get some rental reliever at the deadline 
or I can just take one of my prospects, make that guy, you know, a dynamite relief ace, you know, pitching in the second half of the year, and get to keep my two or three good young hitting prospects. Yeah, that's maybe a better way to go. Okay. I'm going to metaphorically shift gears. The, uh, the, uh, the, let's, I'm going to say a team's name. It's, the team's name is the Toronto Blue Jays. The Toronto Blue Jays and Jose Bautista are very likely nearing an agreement. Does that sound right? Yeah, there's been lots of reports that they're close to a two-year deal for about $37 million. Okay. <clears throat> two-year deal, $37 million. All right. It, what was interesting uh, about the the Blue Jays this offseason is that they happened to lose some uh, some rather important pieces to free agency, um, you know, after the completion of the 2016 campaign in Edwin Encarnacion, who was already signed, uh, uh, Michael Saunders, who had a very – very strong first half, uh, if not necessarily full season, just signed by the Phillies, and also, of course, Bautista, who's been there for a number of years. The Royals are a team that um, is scheduled to lose quite a few players to free agency this next year. Uh, so these are very stark examples of, of teams that are essentially being dismantled by, um, you know, by the uh, the rules of free agency, which uh, which is fine. I was wondering, though, if there is an ideal way for a team to be losing its players, is it actually is it good to have sort of a cliff off of off of which all the talent will fall, or is it better to have it staggered? If you, I mean, if you and if a team has control over it, which one should they choose? I think you generally don't want all of your guys hitting free agency at the same time. Um, if you can stagger it, I think you have a better chance of sustaining, you know, multiple years of winning. It, when you have everyone kind of coming off the books at the same time, it puts a lot of pressure on that last year to where you really have to know heading into, like, you're the Royals, right? So you have Hosmer and Moustakis and, you know, all the, they had Wade Davis before they traded him. Danny Duffy, they just signed to an extension, but he was part of this class. Um, you know, they have basically their entire core, Lorenzo Cain, all these guys, free agents at the end of the year. You have to be really convinced that you're going to win this year in order to not trade them and let them walk away potentially in free agency. So, Or you have to punt a year early and say, we don't think we're going to win. Now we're going to try and trade all these guys for value before they hit free agency. Uh, I think if you stagger them, you have a little bit better chance of making realistic evaluations and saying, okay, you know, we have one or two guys coming off the books this year. We can go for it uh, knowing that, you know, if we lose that one guy, we're not necessarily devastated. We'd have to go into a total rebuilding mode. Um, so I think it's probably a little bit better to not have all these guys hitting pregnancy at the same time. Right. And it would seem as though the, the Royals are attempting to avoid that, right, in trading uh, Wade Davis. Uh, for something of value in in Jorge Soler, in trading uh, Gerard Dyson for Nate Carnes, player yes from the Nate Royals, Carnes. right? Yeah. Who was uh, I'm assuming that he's controlled beyond he's uh, got the five, five years left, yeah. Well, that's quite a few, yeah. And then uh, getting five more years of um, of Danny Duffy as well. Yeah, I mean the Royals are basically hedging, right? And I, I know they're they've taken some criticism. I actually kind of like what the Royals have done this offseason, uh, which is unusual. I'm not usually a huge fan of Dayton Moore's moves, but I think what they essentially are doing is saying, can we make ourselves just slightly worse this year in order? To- <laughs> I like that. I like hedging that bet. Yeah, I mean that's what they're trying to do, right? It's like 
marginally downgrade their 26-17 team uh, in order to take some lottery tickets on guys like Soler and Carnes who, you know, probably aren't going to turn into things but have enough talent there where you can look at Soler and say, look, if he figures out how to hit, this could be a really good piece. And with Carnes, if he figures out how to throw strikes and not give up more runs, this could be a really good pitcher. Um, so they're taking some gambles on some guys and essentially saying, look, maybe we'll make ourselves in the aggregate like one win worse and we'll reduce our playoff odds by a couple of percentage points. But we're going to get, you know, three or four of these kind of lottery ticket guys. And if one of them turns into a core piece, great. Now we have significantly more value in our organization. Uh, and we have a chance to either have that core piece for the future as we're losing all these guys or potentially say, okay, now we're going into rebuild mode. Let's trade Carnes or Solaire or whoever next winter for a huge return and, and ex- expedite the, re- the rebuild by getting a bunch of prospects. Right. Now, uh, uh, let's see. When one of his abstracts, Bill James wrote, I think that in uh, all else being equal, a team that has a plan essentially uh, that uh, is seeking to create an, some form of identity in terms of its roster construction is is better off than a team that doesn't have a plan, even if the plan is not a very good plan. Um, the the Royals, of course, well they've made it they made it to consecutive World Series. So you say whatever their plan was. Uh, something about it allowed them to make it to the World Series, and going twice in a row is unlikely, uh, even for a very good team. So that's success. Yeah, I think I just dis- I think I actually disagree with that statement though. Like let's let's talk about teams that like don't have a plan. I think you'd probably say like the Rockies don't seem uh-huh. to really have a plan, right? In baseball, yeah. they're the one who's kind of been the most in neutral. They're not rebuilding. They're not winning. They're just hanging around, hoping to get lucky. The Diamondbacks had a plan. Right? Like their plan was, we're going to win while Tony Larissa and Dave Stewart are still around and employed, uh, and they're going to try and move this timeline up real quick. And which organization do you think had the better year, couple of years, the last couple of years? The Rockies, just kind of twiddling their fingers, doing nothing, or the Diamondbacks, who went very hard in a direction? Well, it, if nothing else, the Diamondbacks proved that it was a bad decision. They, yeah. they at least they come away with some information, their, and they turned over the front office. Their plan was worse than not having a plan. I think yeah, if, they, if Larissa and Stewart had just been like, you yeah, know, we're just going to evaluate for a few years and see what we have, they would still have Tansby Swanson and Ender Inciarte and, you know, these guys who could potentially really help them, and they wouldn't have had to fire everybody. <clears throat> so let's say about the well, – if nothing else, the Royals – the Royals. Let's talk about the Royals. So, all right, so you disagree with the with part of the premise, and that's fine. That's right. Um, this is the uh, Bill James is wrong edition of the podcast. No, I don't think it is, but I would say that uh, it's, it's, I think it's fine to disagree with the premise, or parts of the premise at least. The uh, the Royals have had an identity, um, which um, which the Seattle Mariners have snatched from them in the meantime. But we can uh, we can discuss that in a moment. Uh, the Royals have had an identity, um, and. I guess what I'm curious about is the degree to which um, a team a team is able to is, uh, how quickly a team is able to build that identity, or or I suppose to lose it. Um, and I guess this does uh, to some degree relate to the Mariners because when uh, Bavesi left, uh, they were no not Bavesi no even more recent than that. Why have I blocked out the name of their most recent GM besides Depoto? Jack Sorensic. Yeah, okay. That's why I have to. Right. Jack Zarenczyk was an all right-handed power, right? And yeah, that team was lots of become, DHs, yeah. Right, and that team has quickly become, seems to be based off of, uh, you know, athleticism and defense. Yeah, uh, De- DePoto has changed 
gears entirely. Right. And how how quickly how quickly do you think a team can make that sort of roster construction? How, how, to what degree is a GM handcuffed? Uh, to some extent. I mean, I think DePoto probably would have liked to do this sooner, but he inherited a roster that had, you know, Nelson Cruz and Robinson Cano and Kyle Seeger and some, you know, Felix Hernandez and some older players uh, who weren't going to be part of a rebuilding effort, and the ownership wasn't going to go for them trading all these guys away. So if you're Jerry DePoto and you say, okay, I have been told I have to try and win, and I have these guys who are, you know, good players under contract, significant money, probably not super easy to trade Robinson Cano for value, given how much money he's got left in his deal. Same with Felix Hernandez. So these are, this is my team. I've got these guys, and I have to try and put a good, you know, team that I like around them. Um, it takes a little bit of time if you're handcuffed and you're like 70% of your payroll is already locked in, in players you can't trade. Uh, you, then you're kind of, kind of going around the fringes and then you're doing things like signing Chris Iannetta and you're like trying to remake the team with spare parts and and role players this year I think he's been a little bit more aggressive because he said okay look that didn't didn't work as well as we wanted to um we're really going to push in on kind of turning long-term value into short-term value and and that's why they made things like the Luis Gahara trade where they were able to um kind of go get themselves the kinds of players they wanted to go get if you're if you're a team um if you're a, a, a prospective GM or you know team president, what is this sort of ideal template with which you'd like to work? If you if you were going to come into a job, what is the sort of the current state of that in which you'd like to find it? I would like to have a twenty billion dollar payroll, <laughs> and I would like my owner to live overseas and not watch baseball and just finance my operation. So you just think well, sheer wealth is the, is the thing. I would want. like to have as much money as possible with as little ownership involvement as possible. So whatever the yeah, right really. balance is of like a super rich dude who's just basically treating me like a piggy bank and throwing money at me and ignoring it. But do you think that's – is that the most fun way to win though? If you're like trying to essentially maximize the – the gravity of your achievement or the quality. I mean, I think that probably Theo Epstein's was pretty close, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Winning in a city that hasn't won a really long time probably, you know, ups the ante. I I don't know that you necessarily get enough of a magnitude of difference from winning by giving yourself a greater degree of difficulty that it's, like, worth it. Like, we don't do this in everyday life, right? We're not like, ah, I want to, you know, like, you you walk to the cafe every morning to work. You don't, like, walk in the middle of the road to get a greater sense of satisfaction that you got there. You mean just because I I withstood danger? Yeah, like, oh, look at this. I didn't die today when I put myself at risk, and I've reached the destination I was going for. That's even more fun than, you know, walking on the sidewalk. Like, I'm assuming you walk on a sidewalk. I Uh, do, yeah. yeah. But don't you think that, for example, like, if we look at another sport, I did player in this case, and perhaps that's why this represents a departure from the point or the point I was trying to make, which was LeBron James going to Cleveland to win a championship. That's a team with a drought. And he had a particular connection to that community. Is that not is that not the same thing? No, I mean I think like if you're saying does LeBron James get more value out of winning a championship in Cleveland than he is in Miami? I think that's absolutely true, right? Because in that point he's celebrating with his friends and family and his hometown, um, you know, people he grew up with, and bringing that direct joy to people uh, who he has some familial or geographic connection to so he just gets a greater return on that but i don't know that that's because there was greater difficulty right like that was kind of your original point was like oh if it's harder then you get more 
more satisfaction. I don't think it was because it was harder. It's just because there was an inherent benefit to bringing joy to people around him. Okay. So the wealthiest team with the little with the least owner intervention. If you were to rank the top three teams, then by those standards. Yeah. If I could have a blind mute owner who is locked in solitary confinement, and I was yeah. just withdrawing money from his hedge fund, that Fine. would be ideal. Okay, that doesn't exist. Well, okay, well maybe, at, maybe it, it might someday. Let's look at let's look at reality. What 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 are the teams now that most? Mid- I mean, you also don't you want to join a team that has. Uh, I guess as little money as possible locked up, or at least certainly locked up in difficult contracts. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, if it was like if you had a chance to take over the Dodgers, who have some bad money on the books, or the Phillies, who have like no money on the books, or the Padres, who have literally no money on the books, uh, you would take the Dodgers, right? Like <laughs> you're like, oh, the resources matter a lot more than available spending. I mean, like the. The reality of a bad contract is it prevents you from signing other contracts. But if you don't have any money to sign contracts, it's it's just as limiting or more limiting. If you're the Oakland A's and you can't sign free agents because no one wants to play in a stadium where your poop falls on you while you're showering, you know, that's... <laughs> Wait, that, oh, yeah, that happened, didn't it? Yeah, That happens a lot. Yeah. Hey, uh, I noticed in Craig Edwards' post for today, he was discussing the, um, you know, relocation in, in of franchises in Major League Baseball relative to other sports. He mentioned that uh, that Oakland is no longer receiving – or is no longer part of Major League Baseball's revenue-sharing program. Yeah, under the new CBA, they're getting uh, removed from the revenue-sharing receivership because they're not actually a small market team. Oakland and the Bay Area, there's a lot of money there. So There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of access to wealth. And so how – so what, why have they so – their, sta- their stadium is garbage. Stadium's garbage. Their and stadium so is garbage, yeah. Right. And, and, and just how are the, how was it assessed? Is it market size? Is that, yeah. is that what the term Primarily market size, right. So like, um, if you're like, so some people uh, get upset because the St. Louis Cardinals get, I think, revenue sharing money and they get like competitive draft picks uh, from that competitive balance lottery. And people are like, the Cardinals are really good. They don't need help. But the Cardinals are not in a very large market and they're good because they're well run. So they're not getting penalized for uh, taking advantage of maximizing their fan base, where the A's essentially are, um, have been, uh, receiving money because of the fact that their, uh, ownership or whatever, you know, however you want to phrase it, they have not been able to tap into the, uh, geographic advantage that they have. So essentially the A's are no longer going to receive a subsidy for doing a poor job of extracting revenue from the people who live in their town. Do you think that if the if Oakland had an attractive stadium, would they do would they be considerably better at attracting people? Absolutely, their stadium is a huge hindrance. Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, of course, there are a lot of wealthy people there. Yeah, I mean, the Bay Area is is not lacking for money or access to uh, companies who want to advertise or dot com startups. If the if Oakland obviously the Giants are there, but if Oakland could set themselves up as like some kind of reasonable alternative to the Giants, there's a lot of money in the Bay Area to be to be made. And the fact that the A's stadium is about as undesirable a sports stadium as exists uh, has really harmed their ability to tap into that market. I believe uh, too the the Giants are are they not the only club. To have uh, financed entirely their stadium? Uh, I believe they are maybe not the only one, but they're, they were certainly one of the first. I know maybe baseball is not very happy about it, uh, but I, I, I think someone else might have done it. But, yeah, the Giants are 
are notable for having paid for them their stadium themselves. Right, and I think maybe maybe the Cardinals also uh, paid for a large part of theirs. It's possible. Or, I don't remember what it is. I feel like someone else did, but yeah. Um, and Major League Baseball doesn't like it because, because what, they're not receiving free money from their yeah, municipality? Right. Major League Baseball likes to have their businesses subsidized by taxpayers when they can. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, let's see. Let's look at uh, – so what um, – yeah, well, that, that conversation's over, isn't it? Yeah. All right. <laughs> that was the worst segue ever. No, this is the worst segue ever. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to ask you about this. Uh, over the last his last few pieces, uh, Neil Weinberg has has examined the hit by pitch. Yeah, and I think he looked at well, he looked at Brandon Geyer, or maybe someone else looked at Brandon Geyer, but uh, Weinberg definitely looked at the other hit by pitch savant, Derek Dietrich. Yeah, who by the way is a apparently is an average major league player. Uh, depends on what you think of his defense. He right. he's a hitter who is not a good fielder. Okay. All right. But he well, he, right. So he's a sufficient hitter at least. Yeah, he can hit. Yep. Mm, and uh, he certainly does not hurt his value. Uh, certainly not as much as his body by getting hit a lot. Well, it depends on uh, what he breaks. His right. value would go Wein- down if he got a concussion. The Weinberg, Weinberg. Just ignore uh, my also, comment. That's fine. Go right yeah. ahead. Yeah, that's fine. Weinberg also uh, wrote recently about Coco Crisp, yeah. who I think has not been hit uh, for. Some thousand, five thousand plate appearances, let's say. If you're a Coco Crisp and you're already super injury prone, you're doing whatever you can to not get hurt again. To get out of the way, yeah. And he's he's made almost an art of it. Yeah. I was wondering though, what if there's been any research done? So I could I can attest to the fact that now I was never ever ever going to be a major league player, but I do know that one of the um one of the reasons I stopped playing baseball or had much less interest in playing baseball was because I got to a point where kids in my league started throwing, I mean, not 90 miles per hour, 80 miles per hour. And, uh, and of course, they were like, you know, 17, and they had no idea where it was going. And knowing that I was not going to be a major league baseball player or a professional of any sort, I said, this is not worth it. I am not going to, this is not going to make me any money. The only thing is I could get hurt. And I did not like that. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was dissuaded by the velocity. But I wonder how many... How many good or how pot- potentially good major leaguers do you think uh, have have left the game behind be- just because they didn't like the idea of getting hit by a fastball? Um, probably more than zero, but I yeah. wonder if like if you're a good enough athlete that you could be a major league baseball player. Uh, you probably have other sports you could switch to. You probably wouldn't just quit athletics in general. You'd say, okay, maybe I can go play football or basketball or something. But if you're going from baseball to football for health reasons, you're an idiot. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's true. Although I will say, and this is probably some of the sort of, um, fallacy that exists with driving. For some reason, driving feels safe because we, especially when, when people think about driving their own car versus having, uh, uh, driving in an um, automated vehicle is right. Is that I think what on average an automated vehicle is safer, but because one does not exercise control over the direction, it does not feel as safe. Um, sure, sure. I think that in football, right, like you control, you have a maybe you could have a sense like if you're the ball carrier or alternatively you're the one going in for tackle, you sense that you have some control over the situation, even though the false sense of injured. control. <laughs> sure, false sense of control. Right. Yeah. Whereas with baseball, I don't, well, I thought the other point you might make is if you're athletic enough 
and you have good, you know good enough uh, hand-eye coordination, for example, to hit a baseball at, that's going at 80 or 90 miles per hour, then you probably also have sufficient body control to get out of the way. Sure. I mean, that's certainly not true in every case. If someone throws a fastball, like, you know, middle of your back, there's nothing you can do. You can't duck. You can't jump. You're right. just, it's going to hit you. It's going to hit you, yeah. yeah. Unless you're Coco Crisp, apparently. Yeah, or he's just gotten really lucky that no one bothers to throw inside on Coco Crisp because he has no power, and Never who cares? Worked. Just pitch him away. Yeah. I think he's been pitched away with some frequency. It seems yeah. to be working. I would but think if you were a significant power hitter, uh, you're going to get pitched inside, and therefore there's basically no chance that you can avoid getting hit by pitch occasionally. Right. And you, and we well, could go to tennis or something, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I think. What the, sport do you think has the lowest incident of injury? Uh, golf. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, besides like hurting your back, I don't know what else you could do. You could develop uh, calluses on your toes. What was the thing? Didn't, didn't uh, Tiger? I mean, except for his, besides his personal problems, uh, Tiger Woods. He has a back problem. I think I would think like a the back injury is probably the Tommy John of golf, right? Like that's probably the major one that takes you out is your back hurts. What about oblique? I, I I mean I don't follow tennis all that. Well, you should have David Appleman on. He probably knows all about this. But like uh, I I have never heard of a golfer missing a tournament with an oblique injury. Yeah. Right. So maybe that's it. And it's also and maybe what is like what is this uh, when you when you overuse like a a muscle or something and then you get a injury from that. Yeah, you know, like what? from the computer. What's that called? You, like type on your computer too much. Uh, you could get like keyboard hands. Carpal tunnel or something? Yeah, there you go. That sounds yeah. more official. Can you get carpal, some sort of carpal tunnel from golf? I don't. I have no idea. This Over is a, a very good question to be asking someone who knows nothing about golf. Yeah. What about baseball? Can you get carpal tunnel from baseball? I have never heard of anyone getting carpal tunnel from baseball. No, I haven't heard that either. Although there are injuries related to overuse, certainly. I mean, most of them in some ways, I guess. Yeah. Tommy John. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think that there is an injury out there that uh, couldn't be avoided if you didn't use the thing you were injured. Yeah. Hey, I have a good question. Do you think that uh, a team that's located in an heavily uh, in an area that's heavily tra- trafficked by pedestrians, what's the, what's the advantage of that? If if people can walk to your park, you think it's a big advantage. No. No. Why would that be a huge advantage? In what way would that be an advantage? Well, I was thinking, like, in the case of, like, Fenway or Wrigley or, I don't know, those two mostly, I guess I was thinking. Uh, as far as I know, a lot of people take the, was it the T in Boston? They sure, take, yeah, the T. They take the T to Boston. They don't, they, don't, they don't walk to Fenway. They take the T to Fenway. Is there any any reason to believe that if people are forced to drive to your stadium – that, that it might uh, prevent them from going? Or is it just, like, essentially all based on wins and losses? I mean, I think people just basically make a evaluation of, like, do I want to watch baseball? Yes. How do I get to the team closest to me? And then they yeah. take that mode of transportation. Like, I don't think – I mean, it's possible, certainly possible. Like, Tampa Bay, I think, has a scenario where uh, people don't want to drive across some specific bridge or something, so their attendance might be down because of, like, the location of it. But mm-hmm. I think – uh, what didn't um, the former owner of the Dodgers uh, 
McCourt, Frank McCourt, didn't he make a ton of money on the parking lots around the stadium? That was like how he made all his money. It was like he owned all the parking lots in Boston or something, and he made a killing. Yeah, he was a parking lot. He was like a parking lot magnet, right? Yeah. So if you force people to drive and you can charge them 50 bucks to park their car, maybe you have better revenues than if they're paying $3 to take the tea. Uh, profiting from parking lots, I, I, I don't I mean, obviously Dante riding the Inferno would not have had uh, reserved a ring of hell for that. But I have to imagine it's one of the deeper ones. You know, one of my favorite things about living in Bend, Oregon, there isn't a single paid parking spot in the whole town. Really? The entire town is free parking, including the garage. Oh, that's great. What is it? What does the town do for revenue? Taxes. Yeah, they just yeah. Ta- tax you through the whole. Do you want to actually hear the most fascinating thing about Bend, Oregon? The thing that I like, this is an interesting place, but the most interesting thing about Bend? Sure. We have a blockbuster video. Oh, that is. We have a functioning, <laughs> open blockbuster video. Right. Well, at a certain point, I think that th- there was like a certain population of franchisees, right? Who were just like, like Blockbuster, the company, I mean, I think it still yeah, exists. No, I think they're dead. They got bought by right. Direct Dish Network or something. Okay. So, But there were people who essentially owned their stores. They were still allowed to, to just exist. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's no like parent company to be like, hey, you can't use our trademarks anymore. I mean, I guess Dish Network could maybe make the guy stop or something. But yeah, like I just drove by one day and I was like, is that a Blockbuster video that hasn't been converted? And then I like, went up to it. And I was like, nope, it's a Blockbuster video that hasn't ceased operations. So I don't know if there's any others in the whole country, but we have a Blockbuster. No. Have you gone there to rent no, anything? I don't even have a DVD player. You don't have a DVD player? No. Hmm. How do you how do you watch how do you go to the library and get movies? I don't go to the library and get movies. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess that sounds yeah. right. Oh yeah, look at that. I can I can uh I'm looking at it from October twenty thirteen. I see your blockbuster. Yeah, it's on Third Street. Yeah, it is. It's right across from Slick. Slick. Oh the Slick's barbecue. I think that place actually is not in business anymore. Oh, okay. No, I think like the barbecue joint is dead, but the blockbuster video remains. And across from Carl's Jr. as well. Yeah. I, Next to the Chevron. Correct. Yeah. 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 Oh, look at Bend. Yeah, look at us with our blockbuster video. The most the, outdoorsy town in America where people don't watch movies still has a blockbuster. You know, uh, when this photo was taken, October 2013, gas was three forty-five a gallon. Uh, it's like two forty now, so yeah, it's better. And the year before... The year before, uh, no, this is November 2017. Gas was November 2017. You've gone into the future. I've gone into Let's November talk about the time machine. What will gas be? I want to go make some oil futures bets. November 2007, gas was 409. Oh man, that's rough. Especially because this is a town where uh, you know we're in Central Oregon. If you want to leave Bend, the only way to do it is by car. No, actually, sorry, that was April 2012. I'm trying to. The prices are obscured for the 2007 view. Okay. But I'm sure you're dying to know, Cameron. Uh, 409 in 2007. It was over four dollars for a while. That was expensive. Yeah, but it's only a 240 there, huh? Yeah, 240. It's not so bad. Yeah. Yeah, there's the blockbuster again. Yeah, it's still there. Yeah. Shockingly, still open. Yeah, look at that. Well, good luck to them. Yeah. Do you think there will ever be a, a point when you know the, the vinyl, I believe, has become more popular after having fallen out of favor? That, like, come around again? That, like DVDs will come back in style. Sure, something like that. No. No. 
I think uh, what the whole point of like physical media was that it was faster and that you could have higher quality. But as like internet speeds get upgraded and eventually we're all going to have fiber optic cables or whatever, like there's just only so much resolution you can pack into a video. Yeah. So when can we watch it just in our minds? Uh, well, I think that's called sleeping and, and oh, dreaming. Yeah, right. So every every night, yeah. or for you it's during the day during your like seven naps. Ha <laughs> ha! Not as many during the winter actually. Just mm-hmm. more sleep at night. Okay, you're done, Dave Cameron. You fulfilled right. your obligation. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Studio, and this is also the appropriate way to end the program. I got it this time. <laughs> okay, next up. Thank you.